I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art historian, and myself, Justin Bua, artist. Today, we're very excited to talk about one of my favorite artists of all time, Norman Rockwell. And Lizzie doesn't know much about Norman Rockwell. I don't. I've never studied him. He is sort of an idiosyncratic artist, an important one, I would argue, but he's difficult to fit within a linear narrative of art. And so I think because of that, he is often left out of the conversation. And people may know some of his more iconic works, but they don't really know how to talk about him. They don't know the significance of his practice. And I think that we should talk about all those things. Okay. So Rockwell, here's my claim to fame. Rockwell grew up, was born at least until he was two years old, uh, five blocks from me. Rockwell is from 103rd Street. Every, everybody from New York City, check this out. <laughs> this is the craziest thing because it's like, you know, this is like the hood back in the days. But Rockwell was from 103rd Street between Broadway and Amsterdam Avenue. That's crazy. 1894 to 1896, he lived there. So Rockwell was born in 1894, died in 1978. Uh, but he's from New York City, which makes so much sense because to me, that is the pumping, bloody heart of New York and America. And Rockwell is quintessential Americana painting. And he's not, you know, a lot of the problem with Rockwell is that he's been deemed by people like you, not you, but people like you who are art historians have just thrown him in a category of kitsch or over-sentimental, like he's Thomas Kincaid. Uh, or everything is so Americana, they've actually, uh, they've actually made his name into a phrase like, oh, that's so Rockwellian. But the reality is, it's, he's the opposite. You know, Rockwell, Norman Rockwell, is a guy who is the antithesis of a Kincaid because this guy came to the table with such incredible skill that he acquired through years of perseverance and years of study. And I think even more important than the skill is the sincerity of his design, that he, sure, is painting whimsical, nostalgic Americana narratives. But toward the end of his career, he's also painting really subversive works in support of the civil rights movement, in support of feminism. And he had a lot to say. And along your point, what you said about art historians not really getting it, I wanted to mention one in particular, this guy Clement Greenberg, who was hugely supportive of the abstract expressionists in the 1950s. And Rockwell, his most significant work, in my opinion, uh, were the works that he did in the 30s and the 40s. That was really his sweet spot of his fine art career. So Greenberg would have been really familiar with him. And he's supporting people like Pollock, like de Kooning, who are very avant-garde thinkers, really a lot more conceptual and rooted in this concept that Americans are going to 
be the new tastemakers within art. And so a very different aesthetic than Rockwell. But this is what Clement Greenberg wrote about Rockwell. He said, you have to put Rockwell down, down below the rank of a minor artist. He chose not to be serious. And I just thought that that was the most diminishing thing I've ever read. It was just so short-sighted. Why can't there be space for a Pollock and also a Rockwell? I mean, that's insane. Yeah. I actually consider Rockwell to be one of the greatest painters of all time. And before I get into a little bit of his, his history about how he became Rockwell, uh, <clears throat> when I've seen uh, at the LA Art Show and several places I've actually seen Rockwell's, you know, Rockwell's produced over 4,000 works. And of those 4,000, they either exist in uh, private collections, galleries, museums, but also a lot of his works have been destroyed in fires. Really bizarre, uh, a little sidebar that his a lot of his works don't exist anymore. And that's really sad because I don't think I've ever seen an original painting when I've seen Rockwell's that are as deliciously beautiful. The oil paint, the sensuality, the composition, the design, the color, the technique is just really beyond brilliant. And that's why I consider Rockwell to be one of the greatest painters of all time and I really do. And so let's 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 go back to New York City on 103rd Street and he he obviously we can't get into too much of his history because this is only a 30 minute show ladies and gentlemen, but Rockwell grew up loving the illustrators, the American illustrators, specifically JC Liondecker. Liondecker was his hero. Liondecker was a god. Liondecker was a god who, who him and his brother Frank, J.C. Liondecker and his brother Frank, went to Paris. He studied with Bouguereau, the greatest, you know, one of the greatest painters of all time. And uh, Rockwell wanted to be Liondecker. So he used to follow him to the train station. <laughs> as a little kid, he would follow him as a train station, which fast forward to later on as, as Rockwell become the quintessential artist of the Saturday Evening Post – Liondecker was the guy who did all the Saturday Evening Post, and they just basically gave that job to Rockwell. So Liondecker was out of work, but but Liondecker was a star. He the forties, the thirties, the twenties was the days when you could be a rock star when you were an illustrator, and Liondecker was a star. And not only did Rockwell want to be a star like him, he wanted to be as good of a draftsman and a painter as him. So Rockwell went on to study at the Art Students League on 57th Street in New York City. And he studied with George Bridgman, the father of construction uh, anatomy, and studied with guys that were heavies, you know what I mean? And worked so hard. And eventually started doing really, uh, started going into the field and doing a lot of black and white and red work, because back then you were just doing three colors. And he did a lot, he did, uh, you know, digest covers, he did uh, look, he did, I wonder if he did literally digest, literary digest covers, uh, Saturday Evening Post, which was like, to be on the Saturday Evening Post back then was like, you made it, you know, and so he he started doing that and started, uh, eventually became the Saturday Evening Post guy, and he was called an illustrator, but to us now, that's very derogatory. And it was meant in in two ways back then. It was meant to be like your art critic that criticized him would consider himself an illustrator. 
But Rockwell also considered himself an illustrator, and he thought that was okay. He was, what is the job of an illustrator? He's illustrating the ideas of others or concepts. And Michelangelo was doing the same thing for Pope Julius II, and Rembrandt was doing the same thing. And uh, along the lines of the Rembrandt connection, Rockwell was really influenced by Rembrandt, and Rembrandt was his darling. And there's a story that I read that he went to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and he was looking at one of Rembrandt's self-portraits, and with tears in his eyes, he said, did I do okay? And Aww. I just love that. That lineage really informs what Rockwell's trying to do, and the way that he's able to create these figures with narratives. And and, and, that, and, that, and that's, that was ma- what made him great, right? Yeah. Is that what you were saying? Oh, absolutely. I think that's part of what made him great. I think the other part was the trenchant message of some of his paintings. Yeah, he was so uh, he would use he would use models from around his neighborhood. Like that's what he did. Like, and he only painted from life. So he was very meticulous uh, about how he set up his atelier, and he would get up uh, every morning, and he would work all the way through the night every day, uh, usually including holidays. He had an incredible, bizarre work ethic. He liked to bike ride and play sports. But really, he he was like, I think it was a minimum of eight hours a day where he would just grind. He was grinding every day in studio. And he had his, his entire studio set up, and he didn't believe in using photos because photos would flatten your painting. But he was very much a guy like Liondecker, his hero, he would paint from life. Are you sure about that photo thing, though? Because I went to a Stockbridge museum, and Stockbridge is where he settled, and that's where most of his subjects were from, or people living in the town. And there was a whole section on photographs that influenced the paintings, and you can see that they're essentially the same composition. Okay, so now we're fast-forwarding. So early on in his life, because of the incredible uh, load, heavy load of work that he actually had to get through, he used photos and then eventually he opaque projectored the photos and then eventually he hired an assistant who traced the opaque projector photos that he would paint <laughs> so yeah he went from completely being a guy because Liondecker was very was a purist and he was very puritanical about his ideology of only his methodology of you can only paint from life period because that was Bouguereau right you have to understand if you think about the lineage uh, it really came from you know Michelangelo, right? Bridgman goes all the way back to Michelangelo to the Renaissance, uh, and Bouguereau too. So he's like got these multi lineage artists, this academic vibration that's just pure. And Leindecker was very disgusted by anybody who used photo reference. And so, because of speed uh, and efficiency, Rockwell, you're right, did start using photo reference and and then started to trace his work. But you can see the departure. Uh, later on in his work, like around the 50s, 60s, you can see that it felt a little bit more hyper-realism. Like there was there was way more hyper-realistic aspects to his work. And I feel like the expressions and the emotions, in my opinion, became a little bit less uh, Rockwellian, I guess. And not used in a positive context, not in the way that other people use to, to denigrate his work. Interesting. Well, I think that he explored the use of these tools, and I actually see that as a positive because he's open-minded to the possibilities of how photography and how projections can enhance his work. And maybe the aesthetic is a little bit more 
overt or more precise and a little bit less interpretive. But I still think that the message behind some of the paintings that he did later on in his life, the message is just phenomenal. And one that I'm thinking of that you and I discussed, I can't remember what it's called, but it is a little African-American girl walking and you see these huge foreboding gigantic legs of four white U.S. marshals and she's walking outside and so she's by this wall and graffitied on that wall is the N-word and then you also see this residue of a tomato that's been thrown at her face or the attempt was to hit her. Mm -hmm. And this particular work is just so powerful and it references a really critical time in American history when we are, I believe this was a specific story that happened in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And it was this little girl named Ruby. What's her last name? Ruby. And this was when the government was mandating a dismantling of segregation within schools. And so African-American kids were forced into these white school environments. And this little girl, Ruby, was the first black kid to enter into this school in New Orleans and received an onslaught of just damaging, hideous, racist behavior from her classmates. And you see in this painting just how confident she is, how resolute, how courageous. And she physically is dwarfed by these gigantic white legs. And yet her little face is turned up and she's dressed so well. And it's just a really poignant piece and that she is not distracted by the tomato. She's not distracted by the N-word. And she is seemingly oblivious to these white bodies. She is just forging ahead And I think that is such a beautiful statement of a really politically activated time. Yeah. I mean, and that's what, that's what Rockwell was able to do. Yeah. And this was a later piece. That's why I brought it up because it was done when he was already using photography and projections, like you say, but I don't think that takes away. I think if anything, it enhances because it allows for a more clarity uh, when engaging with the work. No, and I think Rockwell was able to, you know, look, this is a guy who had so much skill. It didn't really matter that he was using photos. And, you know, even though Leindecker would, <laughs> you know, would would probably hate what Rockwell was doing. Uh, and I know he did. I, I think that I don't, I don't care. I mean, people want to use photography in an advantageous way to be more eloquent visually, I think that's fantastic. And I think that Rockwell was able to do that. But this is, you know, he was a master draftsman. He was a, and he worked very traditionally. Rockwell would do finished drawings, finished drawings, oftentimes finished value keys. And his drawings were value keys. In other words, his drawings act as tonal paintings so that when he would paint it, which once again, we reference Rembrandt, he would paint it in a very traditional Rembrandtian way where he would glaze on top of the drawing and then paint opaquely. His lights being more opaque, his darks being more translucent and transparent. So he he worked in a very traditional uh, Rembrandtian way, uh, like the masters. But he was very secure. He had a roadmap on where he was going. So everything was finished. Like his drawings were solid. His studies were solid. 
And that's what made his work so great. And, and to be able to do that and to have such beautiful designs and such great expressions, like especially his kids. If you look at his kids, they're always really funny. He was really funny. Like his work had a real kind of humor to it. And I know he had a problem with, uh, I, I think that he was very self-critical, obviously, like all artists, but with painting pretty women. But I think he was incredible with pretty women. Probably not as great as some of the other masters that were out there, the Howard Chandler Christie's perhaps, the James Montgomery Flags, the American illustrators that were uh, before before him. But he was certainly an absolute master. But he was he had a real weird knack for kids. Like he was able to capture that kind of that that kid kind of gawkiness and naive naivete and that those expressions that only kids have, you know what I mean? Like about the wonder of the world in their, in their eyes, that he could really capture that. Absolutely. The eyes, but also just the movements in the body. All of his paintings of kids, I think you're right to say that they just capture the deliciousness of childhood, the whimsy, the wonder. And it was interesting when you mentioned that he paints beautiful women and yes, this is a critique that we could really apply to anybody. But Especially made- me, because I suck at painting pretty women, as all my fans know. <laughs> That's one of my hardest things to do. But it made me think of this one painting of Rockwell's. It's of a little girl, and she's holding a fashion magazine, and then she's looking her at herself in the mirror. And I think that is just such a a perfect mm. psychological portrait of the pressures that little girls are confronted with to look a certain way and how this is systemic. This is ingrained when we're so tiny and she's looking at herself thinking, and you can just feel what's going on inside her head. She feels that she's not good enough. She's not pretty enough. She doesn't look like the woman whose picture is on the page that she's holding. And you just see that doubt. You feel that lack. And I think that he captures that in a really beautiful, quiet moment. And so maybe he was confronting the standards of beauty a little bit in that painting. No, I think I think you said it. I mean, he was psychological. He was so in control of his medium and his technique and where he wanted to go that he was able to take the subtlety of those moments and to amplify them into epic masterpiece paintings. And for example, in How to Diet, which is a post cover he did in January 3rd, 1953, he's got a cake chef looking at a How to Diet book while devouring food. Yeah, but he's devouring a tiny little sliver of a vegetable while he right. is sitting in front of right. this gigantic storeroom right. of all of his cakes. And But that was... It's subtle. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a story. He was such a beautiful storyteller. Like every single thing that he did. And by the way, he did a lot of portraits too. He did Eisenhower. He did Nixon. He did Kennedy. He did a lot of portraits that were um, that he got paid a lot of money for. Well, sure. He, there's range. But he captures no, but these I'm nascent he can, moments. Yeah, he did. He captures a nascent. <laughs> Don't use my word nascent. That's my word. I've been waiting to use it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he really does. And then... Um, he also, if we could just take a step back to, to the bid, which is a post cover he did May 15th, 1948, he then does stuff that no artist had been doing. He's using photography to even another dimension where he's taking aerial shots of all or, or just different compositions. But in this one, the bid, he takes an aerial shot of these four people uh, playing cards 
And it's such a weird perspective. Like artists are not painting from this point of view, this vantage point. And everything he does, like the dugout, the way he's able to crop the expression of, uh, of all of these figures that are baseball players and the crowd is howling at them and booing at them. As you could see, the Chicago Cubs are just, you know, completely deflated. You know, they're all deflated. And the crowd is just, you know, echoing that and just harassing them. Oh, yeah. He is such a master storyteller. and Master. I think it's worth discussing the first time that his art really landed within a fine art realm, which was his series of freedoms. And this was Mm -hmm. influenced by a 1943 speech that then-President Roosevelt delivered. And the freedoms, there are four of them, freedom to worship, freedom of speech, Mm -hmm. freedom from want, and freedom from fear. So the one that is perhaps most iconic is the freedom from want. And that's that big Thanksgiving tableau. And we see a which white is, Which family. is used everywhere. Oh, yeah, all over the place. I mean, this is from, guys, this is from calendars to postcards to note cards to, you know, people parodying them for years. Artists have parodied this. Movies have done this exact shot over and over again in the in the world of film. Totally. And if you think about the concept of a parody, the original has to be so well known mm-hmm. that you're able to quote it visually while making subtle changes and know that your audience is going to understand what those changes are. Right. And so that just speaks to how transcendent his work was and how popular. So this particular painting, it's a Thanksgiving scene. This white family is crowded around a table And it's about abundance and just this familial moment of warmth and of gratitude. And I think an interesting juxtaposition is between the emptiness of the plates and then the overabundance of all of the, well, the turkey certainly, but the food that we expect to see. And so he doesn't really paint a lot of food. He just paints the expectation of that moment. And I think that that's a subtle and intriguing choice because if I were to paint a Thanksgiving scene, I would have the plates completely stuffed with the cranberry sauce and everything, but you don't see that. Everything is kind of covered and just implied. Well, it's also lit in a very Christ-like way. You know, it's backlit and you feel like there, there's a there's a godliness and this kind of heaven light that's shining through. It's really white, white light. You know what I mean? And it's crisp light that's rim lighting, rim lighting all the characters and the turkey. And yet he is the quintessential Americana artist. Because America, for the first time, we have our story too. You know, the story's always been told through Europe through a European lens, right? And here we have our own artist. We have Rockwell. We have Norman Rockwell. He's ours, telling our American history. And our history is rich. It's subtle. It's full of contradictions. It's it's sad. It's you know it it does have tinges of racism and and he's he's talking about that as well. But he's also talking about those beautiful moments. You know the moments where we can all come together as and which he does politically sometimes as well. Those moments where we all do come together and help each other out. Yeah, and I really appreciate your saying that he is painting a decidedly 
a distinctively American experience because we just did a episode on Winslow Homer. And to me, Rockwell is within that tradition of mm-hmm. zooming in on something that feels American, feels like it is a history that is ours, that is not tethered or moored to anything that's European in expectation or European in historical trajectory. And I do think that there is some subtle criticism of racism in the Thanksgiving piece. How can there not be when Thanksgiving is such a a tarnished (laughs) holiday and when the painting, the way that he does it, like you say, it is so white with the light and the crispness and the way that the curtains in the back frame the head of the patriarch of the family. It's almost like a halo and the whiteness of the faces. How are we not supposed to ask ourselves about the efficacy or the ethics of the Thanksgiving narrative. And with, so the de- I think that, with the dead bird. <laughs> right, 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 with the dead bird. But that that is subtle because yeah. he isn't being, he isn't indicting anybody, but he is presenting an opportunity to examine. Yeah, I mean, his painting Homecoming GI, there's a GI that's coming home and everybody has open arms to... You know, the grandma has her arms wide open, ready to hug him, and all the kids that are climbing up in the tree and the poles, they're all seeing their cousin or brother coming home, and they're like, there he is. He's coming back. He's he's back from fighting for freedom for us. And he always has these, these kind of stories that are that are sentimental. Sometimes they bleed with perhaps too much sentimentalism, but I don't, I, I feel like, you know, there's a heaviness in his work that can easily be uh, misinterpreted as as kitsch and uh, saccharine. Oh, that was just the word I was going to say. That because, well, you stole my nascent word, so why not? I knew you were thinking the word saccharine. I could see it in your eyes, and I was like, throw out saccharine really fast before she says it. Saccharine. I got it. Good job. You got me. Yep. <laughs> and we have to talk about his Rosie the Riveter. Oh, God. Beautiful. And of course, this is something that I want to introduce. But he paints this work that has become so iconic that mm-hmm. I think that people forget that he was the one who painted it. And actually, there was a recent quotation of this Rosie the Riveter composition during the 2016 elections or right before. And this urban artist painted the same setup with Hillary Clinton's face mm. instead of Rosie the Riveter. So do you know it, where that that character comes from? Uh yeah, it was someone that he knew from the town. But she, you know that poet? That's a Michelangelo. Oh, I I did yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of a Michelangelo body because it looks like a dude. Yeah, well that's Michelangelo <laughs> did not like the female he form. He did not like the female but form. He and certainly funny. liked my form. I love him. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just I was feeling super like that right now. But anyway, it's true. He really used Michelangelo, which is another reference, really, going back to his teacher, George Bridgman in Constructive Anatomy, who was a Michelangelo fanatic. So as much as he was influenced by Rembrandt, he's not only influenced by Michelangelo, but he's making a reference to Michelangelo while making a reference for equal rights. Yeah, and absolutely. Americana with the flag in the background. And what is she stepping on, Lizzie? She is stepping on a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf, which That's means right. my struggle. That's right. And she is squashing that sucker. That's right. And so this is just a beautiful panoply of 
references. And it is not just a Michelangelo figure because it sort of has that epic grandeur and it's a female body that we know because it's a female face, but really it's a male body. But it's a specific reference to one of the saints at the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. So he is doing a lot. And something that I find really interesting about his Rosie the Riveter is that even though she's holding this machine that would be a really hard machine to wield, hard for anybody, and she's wearing this denim androgynous outfit, she is very in charge of her own identity, and she's fighting gender binaries and the expectations of women at the time. But also, there's a tiny little makeup cloth that's coming out of one of her pockets and we can see that her fingernails have been painted red. And so there is still this adherence to a normative femininity. And so I think it's interesting that women don't have to just be one thing, that a woman can be interested in entering in the workforce in a decidedly male space mm. and can also be interested in her aesthetics and interested in painting her nails and wearing makeup. And so I like that. I think it's a subtlety that actually is pretty forward thinking. And the last painting that I want to talk about, because there's so many, he's so good. And by the way, the way he can paint hands, uh, which which goes back to Bridgman and his teacher, but the way he paints hands and feet is exceptional, just exceptional. He was an exceptional painter of hands, which tells a lot. But the last painting I want to talk about is that one famous portrait he did, which is one of the greatest self-portraits of all time, where he's looking at himself in the mirror, painting himself with and on his canvas, he's attached, what does he attach? A Rembrandt, a Durer, a famous portrait. A, I a hope fam- of Velasquez, because this is also a quotation of that. No. No? All no, right. it's, it he is a quotation. A of, yeah, it's a quotation of uh, Las Meninas, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's not. It's a, it's a Rembrandt. It's an Albrook Durer. It's a uh, Van Gogh. And we could see that he's also got all of those those uh, props in his studio, right? He's got the helmet. He's got the preliminary sketches of himself on the, on the wall. And so this is a, this is, it's, there's fun. He's having fun, but at the same time, it's a very serious portrait of like, he just does it in a way which makes you feel it's just so freaking whimsical. Yeah. It's playful. And I really like the transparency because for me, Anything is forgivable so long as it's transparent. And he's saying, yep, I'm interested in self-portraiture and I'm deriving some kind of inspiration from these greats. But here's, yeah, I'm deriving it and I'm, I'm showing you how it's done and I'm doing it with the camera behind me. So it's more than looking in the mirror. It's looking from the back at himself looking in the mirror, painting himself. We never saw that before this. This never existed. So not only is Rockwell uh, doing something different, he's doing th- something that I believe is very transformational from a compositional point of view and a, and a, and a perspective point of view. I mean, he's really flipping, flipping it on everybody and, like you said, being very transparent about his process. Norman Rockwell, in my opinion, and if you are ever lucky enough to see a show and to see an original, you're going to see, and I've seen really small ones too that are like diamonds in a coal mine. But Norman Rockwell, in my opinion, is easily the top 
10 greatest painters that has ever, ever lived. Yeah, F you, Clement Greenberg. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, everybody, peace.